Hi, dear listener. Sarah Hammer speaking. Welcome to Learning Day, a journey to explore how we can integrate learning in our everyday lives. Hi, dear Sarah. Mario here. I just wanted you to know that I loved your non-script intro. It was beautiful, alive. And your episode 7 was delightful to listen to. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Mario. You were the first person who sent me a voice note since I started Learning Day, so I wanted to celebrate that. And maybe that will inspire other people to reach out, so who knows? Maybe you, you're a leader in a movement. Thank you so much. And for anyone listening, if you speak Portuguese, go and check Mario's podcast. I will add the link to the show notes. The conversation that you are about to listen to started with someone's tag on someone else's post, moved to direct message, then to WhatsApp, and ended up here on Learning Day. And that is one of the beauties of the internet, isn't it? There are so many ways we can learn with information with each other. But to do that, to take advantage from that opportunity, we need to choose to stop mindlessly scrolling down Instagram, potentially looking for some comfort, because... Learning is fundamentally an uncomfortable process. Lately, I've decided to take that opportunity and to stay without discomfort. And by staying without discomfort, I've been learning a lot about the anti-racism fight. And I won't lie, it was overwhelming. The last few weeks were quite overwhelming. A lot of information was coming my way, a lot of emotions were coming my way. And I can only imagine how it is to live with that uh, every day how it is um, to be the target of racism. And particularly, specifically for that reason, because I have the option to opt out, I decided to opt in and to learn more. And I'm by no, by any means an expert, not at all. I still have so much to learn. I don't even know how much I still have to learn. But I decided to create a list of resources that have helped me so far. And I will link to that on the show notes and on my Instagram. I invite you to check it out. And if you're willing to go on this journey with me, let me know. What have you learned? What would you add? I'm open to stay with the discomfort and continue the conversation. And I would love to do that with you. This episode is not specifically about that. However, it is about the different ways in which we internalize information and decide whether we believe it or not, and if we want to make it our own. And that is a part of the hard process of fighting racism. If you want to learn more about yourself and your learning preferences, this episode is for you. Today's guest is Rebecca Collins. We talk about the hard and delightful stages of a learning experience, the eight ways in which Carl Jung believed we process and internalize information, and how those connect with our learning preferences. I hope you enjoy our chat. Hello, Rebecca. How are you doing today? Hello. I am a little bit sleepy, but otherwise I'm excited to be here. For everyone or anyone listening to this right now, this is a, like a continuation of a conversation that we started on WhatsApp. Yeah, about a month ago. Exactly. So the, it's a conversation that has been one month long. Um, <laughs> And it, it came from one of my favorite things to do, which is to connect with people that I don't know, to talk about random stuff. 
And that conversation proved to be so helpful and insightful for me that I wanted to ask you to be a part of Learning Day. So thank you for accepting this invitation. Thank you for having me here and engaging in the conversation. It's been really fun for me so far. Let's continue that and let's start with these questions that I'm asking every guest at the beginning of the podcast. How would you describe yourself as a learner? Mm, difficult is, is how I would describe myself. <laughs> I, it, it varies a lot for me. Like Whenever I've tried to think about my learning style, I, I notice that I use so many different media to learn and even just different processes, like talking with people as well. But I think the critical thing for me as a learner is that I have to really understand why I'm learning something to give it space. If I don't really have that drive to learn it, then it, it's not going to be given any space in my mind, even really in the short term. So it's important for me to actually understand my motivations at the beginning of learning. And then a lot of it will come through consuming from a variety of sources uh, to get like an idea of the lay of the land before I narrow in on something specific that I really want to go deep on. And where usually do you find these reasons to learn? A lot of the time it's things being issues really like problems that come up for me in daily life. Mm. I think I like problem solution based learning where something might have happened particularly if it's had an emotional impact on me in some way. I really just like to understand why it's happened and how I can create change in that area so that it's not happening over and over again, or at least I'm not having the same reaction to it over and over again. So yeah, it's, it's mainly observing what's happening in my life and in the lives of people around me. What was the hardest thing you've ever learned and what was the most delightful? I think the hardest thing recently has been learning to record video and it's not it's not like the all-time hardest thing that I've ever learned but I think it is reflective of what I find really challenging in learning which is I, I really don't like not being good at stuff I find it really difficult to enjoy those early stages of something and because of that I'm I'm really resistant when I'm going into that process so Video, for example, it's like I had this idea of why I wanted to do it because I can see the role that it plays in my career. And at the same time, when I think about it, I was just so scared to be bad at it. I was so, even though I knew that if I practiced it, I would improve, I was just really scared to be bad in the beginning and to have people around me seeing me not being good at something. That felt really, really scary for me. So yeah, I think like when I've been proactively trying to learn something new, that's, that's the hardest part of it. And then like overall, the hardest learning experiences in my life have probably just come from the biggest challenges I've faced. The big one was where I was living life according to these external expectations and like societal standards of success. And I was doing fairly well on that measure but I was feeling completely miserable myself I was really depressed everything that came through that process I won't go into the whole story here because it's very long but I'm happy to go into it separately <laughs> everything that was in that process of the depression and the breakdown and then the the transition was a really challenging learning process to just come back to understanding what matters to me and learning that 
it's so important for me and I think for people in general to live life according to their values like what really matters to them and to measure success against that rather than some societal measure of success which was a challenging lesson because it means that suddenly there is no path and it was just like entering this complete liminal space of the unknown by definition yeah let me ask you a question related to that before you go into the the good stuff do you feel like we need to have those low points to learn my my short answer is yes i know that for me it's like i really required a catalyst to change and i think coronavirus has been a really interesting illustration of that because everyone keeps saying it's a remarkable reminder of how adaptable we are as people but i think something in that adaptability was just our knowing that we didn't really have a choice we weren't questioning do i want mm -hmm. to make this change or anything like that suddenly people were just like oh i have to do this and for it was i have to do this and it's for a defined well not defined but it's for the short term anyway it's not like an yeah. eternal change yeah. it's just like let's just accept it so i think when we take out the possibility of asking whether we really want it or not or whether it's a good idea or not and we're just like thrown into the reality of it then we have to just learn and adapt so i think it's a really effective way and i think that anyone who avoids learning these kinds of lessons will at some point be forced to learn them by circumstance so in essence yes but i i, I don't know i i would like to think that it's possible to proactively rather than reactively learn these kinds of lessons i just don't know that we'd give them that much space if we don't have the real the real drive which often comes from like suffering or pain to create it i think it's it's about the the why that you were describing earlier it is harder to find your why within than your why on the outside at least for me that happens for sure and maybe it's why it's so hard to go through through an experience like the one you've described, and I, I identify with that as well, going against the path that's predefined or that someone told you that's predefined, because you need to go against the stream, but also very strongly find your internal why that's much harder to keep because no one else is telling you, like, yes, this is what you have to do. I don't know if... Yeah, yeah, that resonates a lot. It's like, yeah, at that point, you're only accountable to yourself. And in some ways, that's so much easier. Like if the only decision maker I'm consulting is myself and my inner guide, hmm. now that I'm connected with it, that's so much easier. It's like I don't need certainty on the on the context. It's just like, does that make sense to me? Yeah, I like that idea of the self-consulting. <laughs> yeah. And I think we will talk about that later in yes, this conversation. Definitely. Now I wanted to move to the good stuff. What was the most delightful thing that you've ever learned? Mm. <laughs> yeah, probably says a lot that I just forgot that half of the question. The most delightful thing I've ever learned, it feels like a cheap answer, but like I, I, it's literally just the being on the other side of the challenges that I just mentioned. So <laughs> with, with video, for example, it's the moment that I realize that I'm capable of something is the most delightful experience of learning, which maybe is bypassing your question a little bit, but there are like specific moments that I can remember from, for example, when I started learning to do headstands, I think I was doing this learning journey for about 
six months because I didn't want anyone to see me being bad at it. So I was doing it in private in my own house when no one was looking and therefore I had no support in the learning process. So it took me a really long time. But I, once I got to that point of feeling balance, not being able to hold it perfectly or anything like that, but the first time that I was upside down and I felt like, oh, this is what the balance point feels like. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I'm striving for. Um, I'm not automatically going to be able to get there every single time or anything like that. But it was like, rather than being this complete unknown of what I was aiming for, I have an image of what someone else doing a headstand looks like. And I can imagine the picture of what me doing a headstand looks like. But this was when I could viscerally experience me having learned this thing then it completely transformed my learning experience. And I had the same thing with video recording where um, we did one take where I just felt completely in flow. And I was like, oh, I'm capable of this. This is that turning point where, where I'm no longer going through the pain of the initial stages of the learning process, not knowing if I will ever be able to get there. It's like I have this micro proof of, no, you'll get there just keep going. This is this is what you know you're looking for now. This is the feeling you know you're looking for. Do you find yourself admiring those small signs that you are on the right track? Um, it's an interesting choice of word. I don't know that I ever would have labeled it as admiring myself. I definitely find myself celebrating them. And as I heard you say admiring mm -hmm. here, actually, there was something in that that really brought me joy to think about it as admiring, because I, th I think that that is part of it. It's like feeling proud of myself and thinking like, wow, like how much, I, I did admire how much change can happen in such a short period of time with the video, for example, it was a 24 hour period where it went from me being totally scared and just like a nightmare to work with because I was refusing to even open my mouth. And I was like, I can't do this. I don't want to, to doing that take being completely in flow and being like, that was it. Like we just, we got the take. It's, it's done. And to see how quickly we can progress or how it's not even about the speed, but just like how able we are to completely transform yeah. in that learning process. Yeah, I asked this question in a way it was kind of looking for some validation that I'm not crazy <laughs> because I do that. The podcast is a really good example. When I first, when I published the first episodes, I was so proud that I finally had done it. Mm -hmm. I think I'd listened to like the first interview maybe five times, like the full thing. It's almost an hour, but I, I was so proud of it. I'm like, oh my God, it, it sounds like a podcast. <laughs> I do I do that with like emails. If I spend a really long time writing an email and thinking about how to do it, like uh, not for, you know, a really basic email, but something that is a really important conversation. And I like, I want to make sure I'm expressing myself using nonviolent communication, which is one of the things I've been learning for the past two years or so. So it's like when I'm going through and trying to get it to this version that I really like and I send it and I will end up coming back to it and rereading it five times just for my own enjoyment. I did the same. Okay. <laughs> okay. We found at least one other person that did the <laughs> Cool. And since we're talking about types of people and I'm like mm. using this word uh, carefully, <laughs> I think that's a good, good segue to the topic of this conversation or yeah. the main topic. I'm sure there'll be other topics. And the conversation we had earlier on WhatsApp was about 
cognitive functions mm-hmm. and how they apply, what they are and how they apply to how we learn best or how we prefer to learn. And so I wanted to ask you to give us a bit of context of what a cognitive function is. Let's start there just as a baseline and then start developing it a bit more. So cognitive functions were a creation of Carl Jung in the 20s. They're basically eight ways of describing how we internalize and process information. So it's taking it in from the outside world, bringing it into our own inner world, and then basically making decisions about whether we agree with it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not. So it is essentially the the processes that are involved in learning. It's been popularized really by being built into Myers-Briggs type indicator, which was invented, I think, in like the 60s. And I mean, we can go later into how well that reflects the cognitive functions. Mm. I don't think it necessarily serves them really well. So for the sake of this conversation, we're going to focus on the cognitive functions in isolation. But there might be some things that you recognize that have come into Myers-Briggs testing. And how would you describe those eight functions? So this is going to be a lot of information coming in all at once. I want to caveat it with saying that it's not particularly important to like memorize the eight functions or anything like that for the sake of understanding this conversation. And I also want to add the caveat that I see them all as more of like a heat map type type thing rather than being really specific boxes. So there are basically two categories within the cognitive functions. One of them is about how we like the observing functions. So it's how we bring in information from the outside world and how we organize that information. And then there are the decider functions, which are about how we decide whether we believe it's true or not, whether we like it or not. Hmm. So on the observer side, we have sensing and intuition. This is what you've seen in Myers-Briggs as like the S and the N. So sensing is about actually looking at what's going on in the world around us. It's very practical. It's very like what is real about the facts and the data, while intuition is a lot more about looking at the patterns and the abstract and noticing trends in what's happening and then taking them out into ideas and bringing them sort of from the present into the future in our minds. Each of these functions works as an introverted function and as an extroverted function. So that's how we split it out again to get eight functions. So we have introverted sensing and extroverted sensing, and introverted intuition and extroverted intuition. The difference basically between them is that the extroverted function is about how you're gathering information from the outside world. So either you're gathering in all of the facts and the data and noticing really what's say like I'm sitting here in the room around me and noticing that there are plants and there are bricks uh, and that it's warm and it's just like very much being aware of the the sensory information that we're getting from the world around us and the facts. Mm -hmm. Then the extroverted intuition on the flip side is like noticing the patterns in the world around me and letting that spark ideas about what could be in the world around me. So that's a function that often shows up in things like brainstorming where you're sparking loads of new ideas and pulling together different connections and thinking about the possibilities. When you flip it to the introverted function, introverted sensing is much more about what's true in in your kind of like history, your personal lived history. 
what has been true. So like when these specific things in my in my real sensory environment are present, this is the the memory that they're bringing up from my past. This is the association that I have with them. It's about my personal relationship with these objects. While on the intuitive side, it's really about narrowing down and organizing that data, like the patterns and trends from the outside world into a coherent path. So the way they work together, um, and this is where it differs from Myers-Briggs typing, is that it's actually more of everyone has some tendency, some strength in all of the different areas. We need all of them to live. It's not like we can just say, well, I'm an S and I'm extroverted, so this is the one function I use. We may have a preference for one function, but we actually need to use all of them in our daily lives. So if you take an example with purely these observer functions, what you see going on is in like a market research. We might start with doing extroverted sensing, which is like going out and doing all of your market research and understanding the the facts about what is out there in the world, what's out there in the space, and then narrowing it down and organizing that information with your introverted sensing so that you actually have this structure, like you might imagine that like a spreadsheet where you've got the columns and you're saying, these are my competitors and this is where they operate and this is the price that they charge for the same product. Then you're going to go divergent again, back to extroverted intuition and start looking at all of the trends and letting the ideas emerge about what's possible. And then organize that down into your introverted intuition so that you're getting a narrow idea of this is the this is the framework this is the future that we want to be creating and pulling out that one path again so they all work in flow i really like the way you describe this in the way how we can use them to solve a specific problem or in a specific situation and i think uh, using a business uh, example is is helpful because most of us in one way or another we can we can recognize ourselves in in that situation and that is important for me because you've mentioned Myers-Briggs and I have quite a strong negative bias towards personality tests they are super helpful incredibly helpful to help us get to know ourselves but at the same time I hate being put in a box and mm. so I always feel like trapped every time someone tells me you're this thing and I'm like but I think I'm also all the others sometimes and so that that's really helpful and I bet that is helpful also for the listeners another thing I note noted here on my notebook was that it sounds like so the observing sensing either if it's introverted or extroverted is a bit about what is what exists mm -hmm. and the intuition is more about what could be And mm -hmm. like coming up with noting and or coming up with opportunities and new realities. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, largely so. It's a it's a funny one because there's often a lot of prejudice, definitely in my circles, around people mm -hmm. who are S's and people who are N's. And actually, I in the I, I also used to carry these stereotypes, and I would be like, oh yeah, we're all N's. It makes us way cooler. And then I started looking at how much better people, not S's necessarily, but people who have really strengthened their S fun their sensing functions, how much better they are at just getting stuff done because they're not like stuck mm -hmm. in their head imagining these things all the time. They're able to be like, okay, how do we make it real? How do we bring it out into the tangible world? What's really going on here? What's the data? Yeah. So now we have all of this data, all of these possibilities. Mm. I'm wondering that the decider 
part of this comes yeah. into play. Excellent. Okay. So let's do the other coin then. So deciders are about thinking and feeling. I think you can pretty much take them as it does what it says on the tin. Like thinking is about the the logic and the reasons for doing something while feeling is about whether whether you like it or not at a really base level. So the introverted deciders are to do with once you've once you've got that information inside how you decide whether to take it on or not broadly as as part of your worldview. So an introverted thinking function is going to look more like how does it align with the the logic that I already have for how the world is, for what true what is true, basically. So the the reasons that I'm getting for this thing, does it does it ring true enough for me to really take it on and to make that part of my worldview? While the introverted feeling is much more like how does that sit with my values? Does it feel aligned with what I believe in and what matters to me? And that's how you decide whether you're taking space for it. When you flip it to the extroverted function, then it's much more about the rest of the tribe. So how is it resonating with um, the people around me? On a thinking function, it's like, it's where you'll see people often taking things into debate. It's like, well, does this idea work for for other people? Does it seem to align with their logic? What are the arguments that people have for and against it? How should that affect my introverted understanding of it based on what I'm seeing in the external world? While extroverted feeling is similar, but looking at um, what emotional reaction does that have in other people do other people seem to like this thing that I'm bringing to them or not like it? So it doesn't necessarily care about their reasons for liking or not liking it. It's just like, do they like it or not like it? And what what emotional reaction does that seem to be creating for people? With these deciders, it's the, the same way with the observers. We actually need to use all of them in our in our lives. If you're only ever thinking about the introverted side and you never consider whether the outside world likes it or it makes sense to the outside world or something like that, you might be able to survive, but it's not necessarily going to be super fulfilling because it creates this separation between the self and the tribe. So there is this reconciling that happens between the two. Um, and there's also an acknowledgement, like someone who's strongly on the thinking side is often going to be driven deep down by the, the, the feeling side of it and vice versa. Someone who's really strong on the feeling side is often driven by the, the logic and the reasons for it deep down that come from the thinking side. So they don't work in, in isolation and it's not really worth thinking about yourself as being like, I am just a thinker. It might be like, I'm really strong in this area and I practice this area a lot, but it's also worth acknowledging how the other areas show up in your life. I think it's very useful to have, this is almost a framework for you to compare or I don't want to use the word analyze, which is the word that came to my mind. Why don't you want to use analyze? I don't know. What does that tell about me? Say <laughs> yeah. about me. <laughs> <laughs> this is coming back here and not wanting to be put in boxes. There's probably something with, with analysis and yeah, not wanting to be put in the box. But Maybe it is. Yeah. I think it's, it's because I don't want, I, I think I'm not, I'm avoiding using the word analyze because I don't want people to feel analyzed 
or mm-hmm. evaluated, you know what I mean? Interesting. Or graded. Maybe, it's Yeah. Well, maybe like when we're using it as Myers-Briggs, especially if it's taking Myers-Briggs into the workplace or any other kind of personality typing in the workplace, it's one of those things where like you do the test together and then your results are announced and you have to share them with each other. And like people start thinking, well, this type's better than this type or, or not necessarily well, definitely not better, but it may feel that way. Because if you're in a culture where certain traits are really admired, respected, rewarded, and actually you're seeing that that's the strengths of some other people in their team, in your team, but they're not your strengths, then that can make it really difficult. And I, I think when, yeah, when it's feeling like analyzed and tested and diagnosed and all of this kind of thing, it comes with a lot of that, mm. is it good or bad? And it's not about that. Yeah, that that's exactly it. Yeah, for me, it's having a framework to understand uh, certain preferences, reactions, uh, moods, even, and mm. acknowledging that all of that is normal. Mm. That you're not crazy or not liking a brainstorming session. Although I'm a facilitator and I am guilty of sometimes uh, pushing people <laughs> towards brainstorming sessions. I've, <laughs> I've been trying to be a bit more aware of how I do that. This is something that we've looked at a lot in uh, my business recently as well, because we're creating a product that's largely based around facilitation or rather like us automating ourselves as facilitators so that we can support teams digitally who we wouldn't be able to support in person. And one of the things as we've been getting deeper and deeper into looking at things like the cognitive functions that we've been questioning is, well, what about the people who really do prefer introverted processing? And it's not about just saying like, we need to hear the quiet voices, which is something that we get used to doing as facilitators. We make sure we're asking if anything is not being said. We're thinking of exercises that can enable people who are perhaps shy to use their voice to express themselves in different ways. But it's not really about that. Like if you're primary way of deciding whether something really resonates with you or not whether you think something is really a good idea or not is through an introverted process then you're not going to be fully bought into something while you're still in that group situation if you don't have time to kind of go away and just be with yourself and reflect or perhaps there is some way of Mm -hmm. doing like complete silence in the room and everyone is meditating and has their eyes closed and you can create your your own space for going inwards within that environment because otherwise there those those voices regardless of how many questions you ask or how many post-it notes you use or whatever those those voices are not really being they're not really expressing to their full extent because they haven't done that processing Mm -hmm. yet which is something that I personally really find when I'm in group dynamics yeah, that, that is very interesting. It's something that I'm definitely aware of. I, I wouldn't say I've cracked uh, that because usually all the processes have a very yeah. fixed time limit and it it is hard when you're working within those constraints to allow for a bit more quiet and slow time. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not at all trying to find excuses. It's, it's just something that I've definitely been reflecting on is like, how can I work with this constraint? Because that's the reality mm. of uh, of the business, uh, but still allow for a different process. And 
One way I found was to allow people to prepare before the session. Yeah. So making sure they know exactly, not exactly what's going to happen, not the dynamics, but the topic. This is what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to do a brainstorm about this topic so that it allows people that prefer this introverted process to get there slower. Yeah. Not slower as in less intelligent, just in a different process. And I think that's yeah. that's what we actively uh, could be more aware of. Yeah. I think one of the things is it does, like introverted processing does tend to look slow, especially to people who prefer extroverted processing because they're processing out loud. So you're witnessing the entire, or not not they, but like someone who is currently using their extroverted processing function is likely doing it out loud. So you're witnessing all of the steps in between and like seeing the working while someone who's doing introverted processing is probably just silent, if not invisible to you at the time. And therefore the other, the experience of the other parties is basically just waiting. And if you're an external processor and you're working with an internal processor, you're like, I can't do my processing until you're back here. So if the impatience comes into it, it can feel like a really long, slow process. So we're talking about preferences mm. and how can we be more aware of what are our preferences and how can we use them? Hmm, interesting. So this is where I think there is actually an advantage of personality profiling, not because it will tell you what your type is, and then you can go, oh, well, the test says that these are my strengths, and these are or these are my preferences, and these are my not preferences. But because if you can actually observe the reaction you're having, as you're answering the questions, it can help you to build self awareness. This is something like I, I love doing a personality test for this reason because it's like this opportunity for me to check in on a bunch of different questions and see like how how is this area of my life working for me right now what is my what what is my current sentiment towards doing this kind of activity like is it something that I'm drawn to is it something that I'm feeling resistant to and I think because I do that uh, that kind of reflection with some frequency as I'm going through and doing answering questions, I actually notice when I'm when I'm changing a bit in an area. Like I will kind of see what my default answer is and then notice that that doesn't feel true for me anymore. And I'm like, actually, it's more like this. So it's a really useful mm -hmm. space for reflection. I think if you can deepen your understanding of the cognitive functions and Again, like I've, I've been studying this for quite a long time and I still find it fairly hard to describe them because they're often described in fairly different ways. And the understanding that I have of them is really to do with my, it's based on my introverted feeling function, largely. It's like, this is kind of what makes mm -hmm. sense to me on the inside. This is what feels right for me. But then when it comes to expressing my logic for it on the outside to the outside world, I'm like, eh, it's all just a bit unclear, really. It's like this kind of fuzzy heat map and it's a bit here-ish and a bit there-ish and I don't really know. So spending some time actually understanding what the eight functions are in that kind of flow, especially with the observer functions when it comes to learning and looking at um, what areas am I taking in a lot of the, the facts and the data and then organizing the facts and the data and then where am I branching out and looking at patterns and thinking of ideas and what ifs and where am I really channeling into a sense of like, this is the, this is the future that's emerging from that whole process. 
you can kind of start to see where your natural tendencies are. So if you're thinking back over your history, rather than like, what feels right for me right now? What do I like best right now? Going and actually looking at your behavior and trying to think of examples that fit into all of those areas, preferably within the same process. Like if you can take an example of when I was starting this podcast, this is what I did. I went and researched the market and then et cetera, et cetera. And you might notice that some areas you really skip over. Maybe you touch on them, maybe you don't do them at all, but you're like, I just want to get to this part because that's the fun part for me. This is what I love doing. So like for me, I love doing my extroverted intuition and I'll look a little bit at what's happening in the outside world and then kind of put that in a bit of a spreadsheet. And then when I'm like halfway through the spreadsheet, I'm like, yeah, but I'm thinking of all of these ideas now and I'm just going to go and play in the idea space and be out here going divergent, thinking of all the fun stuff and whatever. And then I'm like, well, are you going to make it happen, Rebecca? Like if you, if you want to make something happen from it, it really needs to narrow it down. So if you're thinking about your, your common patterns, this is the important thing to look for, for patterns, not just proof of like, well, you know, sometimes I do this one thing. That's useful for showing yourself you can do a function. But if you want to really understand what your preferences are, it's about looking at what do I always do? What do I always prioritize more than the others, like at the expense of the others? That's where you get to the point of it being a real preference. So I think this this process is a lot more about raising questions than actually getting to the answers. Yeah. And I think sometimes we look at personality tests as like the final answer. Mm. And I like the description that you gave me that it's a lot more about raising the questions and reflecting on them. So this is really, the ref it's a very re reflective process more than, there you go, here your type, bye. That makes sense to me. I'm curious to know for you, is there, when you're, when you're listening to the descriptions of the types and when you were listening to the voice notes that I was sending you about them, are there particular things that you're noticing in your own patterns and preferences that you were like, oh yeah, I can see that I just love making space for this one. And when I'm doing it, I'm super alive. And then if I, if the need for using this one comes up, I'm going to be like, I don't want to, this is really hard for me. This is really draining. And Yeah, definitely. I, I could see a little bit of myself in all of them. <laughs> But you gave this example on the voice notes about being at a conference. Mm -hmm. And I think it was extroverted intuition. Yeah. And when you are at a conference and you, you get all of these random ideas and mm -hmm. I live a lot from this stimulus from the outside world. So I, I definitely have that. It's very strong for me. Mm. And I love organizing information mm -hmm. so then it's it's like ah, but you're also introverted i also use a lot of this introverted sensing sensing yeah so this is when you look like when you get to a more complicated layer of it like when you're being typed you have you have four primary functions and there's always one is the opposite of this one and whatever and they and they play together and I'm not going to go into the how that works right now because it's just like too much to take in all at once but the reason I bring it up is that if you have a really strong preference for extroverted intuition your your flip side for organizing that is going to be introverted sensing generally so the two of those play together Because otherwise, if you're if the okay. if the pair was just like to go to introverted intuition, then you're just constantly living in the future. But there is generally this natural craving to be like, okay, how can I make it a little bit real? Like I'm having all of these ideas and stuff, but how can I organize them and keep track of them in some way? And it's like almost yeah. this grounding effect that pairs with this super out there, big picture, just like playing with ideas field. 
and and I think for me the decision is always about values. Not always, of course, as we're yeah. we've been talking about for the last forty five minutes. It's not about having just one <laughs> yeah. fixed uh, way of doing things. But I it's definitely around values and what makes sense to me. But then I need to rationalize everything and make sure I have a logic reason for it. Although I've I've definitely reflected on that and I know that. I do I do that layer on top of the other just to justify to the world that is always expecting me to have like a logic reason for everything I do. Yeah, I do the I do the same. I flip a lot with my my introverted feeling I think is really like my natural impulse, but there are times where I'd like I just don't trust it. Like the outside world trusts logic and stuff and I need to go and get the logic for this so that I really know it makes sense. So I'll have this whole kind of like realization on like a fairly gut feel level where I'm like no this just feels true for me like it's it, it, it feels true for me and then I'm like yeah but how do you know <laughs> so I'll go and yeah go and get yeah. the or organize the the facts around it too so use all of my introverted functions basically yeah well again we found that there's at least one other person in the world <laughs> that does this <laughs> I wanted to make sure we're bringing it back to learning and yes. maybe to a bit more concrete example of what learning is. So how do you see all of this being applied in a learning process? Mm. And maybe if you give an example, that maybe can be useful. Yeah. So I am conscious that we've spoken a lot about how extroverted intuition works. So I'm going to ignore that one. But I think a lot of learning happens first from the extroverted functions, like pulling something in from the outside world. To give the example that I had from earlier, for me, it's like, I really need to feel, I need my introverted feeling to be on board with it. And then I would give space to it. But mm -hmm. what kind of happens is you pair your extroverted observer function. Uh, so say that's like extroverted sensing with one of your introverted functions to decide what you do with that information. So you'll be going out there and looking at all of, say the data, like a researcher will go and they'll look at, the scientific papers and just pull all of the facts from those papers and then probably their like introverted thinking is going to work with the the logic that's come from all of those things that they've drawn from the outside world and actually start narrowing down what makes sense and what doesn't make sense uh, so you're often going to see that pairing of an extroverted function and an introverted function And for some people, actually, it can all play out in, in the extroverted functions. So these are people who you'll see basically learning through conversation um, and perhaps not even through like hearing what the other person has to say in conversation, but possibly even just noticing how they're feeling when they express something in a particular way, like whether actually now that I'm saying it out loud, that seems to sit true for me or it doesn't. Or as I'm saying it, I'm like, okay, cool, this actually makes sense. So that's kind of looking at like an extroverted thinking or an extroverted feeling function. And then how that plays with the, the sensory inputs quite often. So you're like, okay, as I'm saying this thing to the outside world, the person seems to be nodding and resonating, or they seem to be super engaged. And that's getting that, that marker that this is actually working for them. That's validating that this logic that I'm putting out there into the world, or this like cause and belief that I'm expressing out there and the thing that I'm super passionate about that just seems to be resonating with people um, and therefore I'm going to take that on so it's like how the functions pair together to help you decide whether something that is what you're really going to take 
on as your worldview or not. That's like a, a click in the learning process. I think we got to this in our earlier conversation mm-hmm. and it's coming to my mind again. Learning seems to be like this process of making sense of the world. So you're mm-hmm. not just, you know, taking in information, which it's like I, I'm relating that more to the extroverted functions, but maybe no, you also can do that introvertedly. I wonder about that. I have a question for for myself that's around what you can learn purely through introverted functions. Hmm. I think it's possible. I think like the life lessons kind of learning are a fairly introverted yeah. process. Yeah, there's the, the it's maybe the the reflection stage of that learning, which it's necessary to integrate any any learning. Yeah, like we often talk about how teaching is a really good way to solidify learning. So then you kind of flip it, and this is this is where like taking your learning into into action is super important. Like if you're having this whole realization through your introverted, just just through your introverted processing, which I think I do quite a lot. It's like it's all well and good. You've created this shift in like your your kind of like logic worldview, but until you really take it out there into action, then it's not it's not in your body really so there is actually like this this final stage of it where you're taking your from your introverted probably like introverted observer type functions but most of your introverted functions and then you're putting it out there into the outside world with your actions with your thoughts and sharing your thoughts and your feelings and stuff like that with the outside world something about that just kind of like solidifies the change or the learning you've used the word change and learning and learn kind of interchangeably throughout this conversation which is very interesting and that leads me to the last question what is learning for you (laughs) I think the answer is in the question now I do think it's really about change it's the the process of transforming myself into a different version of myself and maybe that's like shifting my ability to do something maybe that's shifting what I believe about something maybe that's shifting how much I know about something but there is this sense of a journey of going from where I'm at now to it's not necessarily this because this would be more growth but like moving towards where I want to be what I want to be creating and that's that's what I, I guess that reflects what I see learning as serving and the fact that I only make space for learning when I really have a reason for it and that's very frequently but it it has to be rooted in a desire to to change in some way thank you Rebecca thank you for your time I know that I could spend many more hours having this conversation (laughs) with you but within this limited time that we had together today I'm very happy that we did this and very grateful for your time. Thank you. As am I. Thank you for giving me the space. Take care. If you want to get in touch with Rebecca, you can find her on LinkedIn. You'll find the link to her profile and to the references she makes on the episode on the show notes. I would also love to hear from you. And you can do that by going to anchor.fm slash learning dash day and leave a voice message or reach out through the Instagram link you'll find on that page. 
If this episode was useful to you, consider subscribing to Learning Day on your podcast app. And, as a little extra, share it with a friend. I don't know where this is going to take us, but I know we're going to learn something along the way. Thank you for listening. See you next time.